This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. Good afternoon. I'm Scott Sagan, the director of the Center for International Security and Cooperation, known as CSAC, at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies here at Stanford. On behalf of CSAC, I want to welcome all of you to the annual Drell Lecture featuring Father Brian Hare. I'm pleased that Sidney Drell, in the front row here, the founding co-director of CSAC, for whom this lecture is named, is here with his wife Harriet. CSAC is Stanford's research center devoted to the study of international security, conducting research on cutting-edge topics, entering into public policy debates, and training the next generation of specialists in international security. The Drell Lecture was established in 1994 by Bud and Cicely Whelan to honor Professor Drell upon his retirement at Stanford. Bud Whelan and Sid Drell, both physicists, made tremendous contributions to national security during the Cold War by providing technical innovations in the areas of intelligence, and arms control. Our speaker this afternoon also has provided crucial guidance to the nation on matters of war and peace. Throughout a career that has combined religious service with public service, Father Hare has been a leading voice promoting clarity and consistency in our thinking about the complex ethical dimensions of nuclear weapons. He is currently the Parker Gilbert Montgomery Professor of the Practice of Religion and public life at Harvard University, and also serves as the Secretary for Social Services and the President of Catholic Charities in the Archdiocese of Boston. In the 1980s, as the head of the Department of Social Development and World Peace for the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops, Father Hare led the bishops in writing the historic 1983 pastoral letter, which criticized and objected to the current, then current, existing U.S. nuclear weapons doctrine and urged the United States and the world to halt the nuclear arms race and to work towards nuclear disarmament. Father Hare has continued to provide thoughtful guidance as well in his books, including The Moral Measure of War, A Tradition of Continuity and Change, Military Intervention and National Sovereignty, and Just War Ethics Revisited. We are fortunate to have Father Hare speaking to us today on the politics and ethics of nonproliferation. Please hold your questions until the end of his talk when we'll have a question and answer session. Please join me in welcoming Father Jay Brian Hare. Thank you very much, Scott. Let me begin by expressing my appreciation to you and to CSAC for the invitation to give this Drell lecture. Stanford, for me, is almost like a second home because I have been invited often here, always treated well, always stimulated intellectually, always challenged in everything one engaged in here. CSAC was the principal reason for my acquaintance with Stanford over the last 20 years, and in a sense, today is a bit of a reunion. Bud and Cicely Whelan, Bill and Lee Perry, 
Sid and Terry at Drell, we were all part of a group called the Aspen Strategy Group, where much of my education on the intricacies of national security came about. Scott Sagan was a graduate student at Harvard doing an extraordinary job on the book Living with Nuclear Weapons at the same time that the bishops were writing their pastoral letter. So in all of, for all of these reasons, it's a great pleasure to come back. But there's a unique pleasure in being asked to give the Sidney Drell lecture. I regard it as an honor and a privilege, both because of the company that has gone before me in this lectureship and because of the honoree. Sid Drell asked me last night when we first met, or how we met, it was when the bishops were drafting their pastoral letter, and all of a sudden one day in my office, my secretary called in casually and said, McGeorge Bundy is on the line. If you had been a graduate student at my time at Harvard, Bundy's reputation for slicing and dicing sloppy arguments uh, was legendary, and no one wanted to be submitted to that. So I picked up the phone with some trepidation about what he would think about the letter. He said two things. He said, first, I think the bishops have it right, and I'll be glad to help you in any way I can. Then he said, the best way I can help you is to, to introduce you to Sidney Drell. He said he's the best man in the field on the intersection of science, technology, and arms control. I came to learn that Mac Bundy was, was right on that question. I then came to learn the enormous respect in which Sid Drell was held in, in his professional discipline of physics. But most importantly, through that professional encounter, I came to know Sid and Harriet Drell and their families and have the privilege of counting them among my closest friends. And so I come to talk to you on the question of the politics and ethics of nonproliferation. I need to narrow this broad topic. I will talk about the proliferation of nuclear weapons, even though nonproliferation encompasses chemical, biological, nuclear, and now strategic delivery vehicles. More precisely, I will talk about the proliferation of nuclear weapons, and I will try to grasp what I see as a central piece of the ethical problem in this broad framework. The piece I wish to concentrate on is the relationship of the principle of non-intervention and the policy of non-proliferation. And I will try to use that central relationship to examine the broader question. More precisely, I'll try to proceed through the lecture in the following way. First, some remarks on ethics and war in general. Secondly, examining the principle of non-intervention and non-proliferation as they have evolved in the last 15 years. And thirdly, trying to use the just war ethic as a framework for systematically relating these two major dimensions of world politics. First, a word on ethics and war in, in general and in the age in which we now live. The ancient ethic of war, the so-called just war ethic, dates from the Roman Empire. And in our time, when we are still debating what empire means, and perhaps describing the United States as one of them, the just war ethic is still part and parcel of the debate about politics, strategy, and ethics. 
synthetically stated, the ethic argues that some uses of force are morally acceptable, but not all uses of force. It then tries to judge which uses of force are morally acceptable by asking questions about ends for which force is used, means by which it is used, the intention which drives policy, and the consequences that follow from different forms of the use of force. The ethic is a two-dimensional ethic. It is meant to be a policy ethic which can engage the discussion of politics and strategy, but it is also meant to be a personal ethic to guide the conscience of citizens and those who serve the state in military and diplomatic service. This ancient ethic, which had seen so many wars and so many forms of governance, met a qualitatively new challenge with the coming of the nuclear age. The qualitatively new challenge was not simply the destructive power that was unleashed as we unlocked the power of the atom. That was the leading edge of the challenge. But the further we got into the nuclear age, the intricacies of deterrence, the relationship of offensive and defensive means of war, all of these posed authentically new questions to the ancient ethic. It indeed helped to bring the question of the ethics of war back to center stage, both in the general public and in a quite extraordinary burst of literature from the 1960s through the end of the century. Now, when the nuclear age burst upon us and challenged us politically, strategically, and morally, the focus of attention among the strategists and the ethicists was on the policies and the arsenals of the superpowers. Nonproliferation, I think, in the early days of the Cold War was regarded as a vital but secondary issue. But the collapse of the Cold War at the end of the 1980s, the end of the, nuclear, of the Cold War as the context for a nuclear world, brought the issue of proliferation of weapons to the center of the strategic and ethical agenda. To some degree, the main problem moved from a superpower problem to a systemic problem, from the problem of how the US and the Soviet Union dealt with each other to the question of what it would mean to have a globe proliferated with weapons of mass destruction. So by the end of the Cold War, a new question emerged at the center, the proliferation of weapons of mass destruction and what to do about them. Then the period from 1990 to 2005, I think brought even greater complexity to the question of non-proliferation. There was less danger now of catastrophic damage being done to the world, but there was greater moral and political complexity. So that by the end of the, of the decade of the 1990s and on into the beginning of this century, I think one would have to say that the agenda for the ethic of war required that we address three legacies each legacy an unfinished question, each legacy a distinct, complicated problem on its own. But the really interesting thing was that the three legacies, while independent and complex in themselves, on occasion came together to form a whole greater than each of its parts. There was first the legacy of the Cold War. The legacy of the Cold War were weapons of mass destruction which continued to exist 
after the war for which they were produced no longer existed. So now we deal with weapons of mass destruction in a new setting. Second legacy was the legacy of the 1990s, the debate about intervention, military intervention within the borders of a sovereign state. Third, the third legacy of the, 19, uh, of, of the new century was the legacy of terrorism and what was the appropriate response to it, politically, strategically, and morally. Three distinct questions, weapons of mass destruction, intervention, and terrorism. But at the heart of these three questions lies the issue of nonproliferation. This is not the only place where the three come together. If you look at the Iraq debate, the Iraq debate appealed to weapons of mass destruction, argued that there was a right to intervention, and argued, thirdly, that what clearly made that right necessary was the way terrorism could relate to weapons of mass destruction. So Iraq brought these three legacies together into one problem, but nonproliferation does also. The way we think about each of these affects our overall judgment on nonproliferation. So I'm trying to take as the focus of the rest of my remarks how one of these questions, the principle of non-intervention and the debates that have occurred on it, relates to the policy of non-proliferation addressing weapons of mass destruction and terrorism. In fact, over the last 15 years, both the principle of non-intervention and the policy of non-proliferation have manifested a complex, changing, distinct narrative but they have been parallel narratives, discussions about intervention in some quarters, discussions about nonproliferation in others. I seek, to, I seek to chart the changes in each discussion and then try to bring the two together. First, the principle of non-intervention. Like the ancient ethic of war, this is also an ancient and central idea in world politics, not quite as old as the just war, but certainly more visible in recent centuries. The principle of non-intervention is at the heart of the foreign policy debate today. Many of us who argued for reasons for intervening in the 1990s were then criticized if we did not agree with the intervention in Iraq. So there are different kinds of interventions, and sorting them out is part of the discussion. In my view, to evaluate non-intervention, you have to do it in a three-step grid. Your conception of political community is the beginning point. What is the community at stake? Secondly, the use of force and your general ethic of the use of force. And then thirdly, your conclusion about the legitimacy of intervention. To give you a sense of the complexity of this principle, let me quickly offer three snapshots historically, of how the judgment of intervention has changed. The first is the medieval model of politics. The medieval model in ancient Europe, often called the res publica Christiana. It was a political community suffused with strong normative themes shaped by faith and ethics. And in that context, the ethic of war was a penal ethic since the community presumably had a single normative view 
when someone broke the rules, the rest of the community was mobilized in the style of a posse to go after the lawbreaker. This is the way Thomas Aquinas treats the just war. And in that setting, a unified political community and a penal model of war, in that setting, intervention was a duty. Indeed, one of Aquinas's predecessors, St. Ambrose of Milan, once said the following, he who knows that evil is being done and does nothing about it is equally guilty with the evildoer. Think about that. I always understood Ambrose was a saint. I never wanted him to be Secretary of State. <laughs> For he had a doctrine of universal intervention. Universal intervention. Intervention as a duty. The medieval model collapsed by the 14th century, and between the 14th and 17th century, there emerged what we today call the Westphalian order of world politics. Here, the concept of political community is not the unified res publica Christiana, it is the sovereign state, which emerged in this period. And in the Westphalian model, the ethic of war, in the first instance, was regarded as the prerogative of the prince. The droit de guerre, to be a sovereign ruler, was to have the right to use force. This, of course, was contested on moral grounds, but the moralists of the just war doctrine had to retreat from many of the restraints of the Middle Ages because they did not have the political consensus to support strong restraints. So with the sovereign state and a more limited ethic of war, one of the ways in which the peace of sovereign states was to be kept was by the principle of non-intervention. Non-intervention now became the duty, the accepted idea among states, because how else would you keep states out of each other's business? And since every state claimed the right to go to war without any authorization from above, secular or religious, you clearly wanted to reduce the reason that states could claim as justification for war. So within the space of three centuries, four centuries at most, you go from a duty of intervention to a duty of non-intervention. The moralists never fully accepted that notion because a duty of non-intervention in absolute terms allows terrible things to happen inside political communities and no one else is responsible for it. The Westphalian model maintained its structure up through the middle of the 20th century. The third model is the UN Charter. The UN Charter acknowledges sovereign states as the basic unit of world politics, but it places sovereign states within the framework of the Charter, and the Charter sets some limits on sovereignty. The Charter has its own ethical force, which is reinforced by modern just war doctrine, which argues for a narrow range of legitimate uses of force primarily defense of oneself or others, or when consensus can be achieved, action under the Charter to fulfill the obligations of Chapter 7 to meet threats against peace and security. But while there is an ethic of war clearly defined to prevent aggression, it is much less clear 
about intervention. The bow to sovereignty that exists within the Charter yielded in the immediate period of the Charter's existence a clear statement of non-intervention. So, with that background, intervention as a duty, non-intervention as a duty, and then sovereignty, but still non-intervention, we entered the 1990s. We entered the 1990s, and things changed dramatically for people who studied politics, ethics, or strategy. For 50 years, the proper nouns that had dominated our discourse were Washington, Moscow, Berlin, London, Bonn, Paris, Tokyo, Beijing. All of a sudden in the 1990s, the proper nouns changed. Now the nouns were Rwanda, Sierra Leone, Haiti, Bosnia, Kosovo. Now it was no longer catastrophic damage that we feared. Now it was primitive violence within states. Now it was no longer how you prevented catastrophic damage. It was what you would do about creeping chaos. And the world didn't really know what to do about creeping chaos for many reasons. Part of them, old-fashioned reasons of realism, no vital interest in Rwanda, no immediate response to it. But there was also the normative question. Intervention was regarded as a threat to order, particularly military intervention. And so we moved through the 1990s almost stumbling from case to case, whether it was politics and strategy, wondering what to do next, or the ethics of the question. Faced with a primacy of in, intrastate violence, not interstate violence, we struggled with the question of is intervention a duty, a right, or the breaking of politics and law in our form of world polity? The dynamic of the debate moved in a given direction. Increasingly, both moralists and lawyers were willing to make exceptions to the rule of non-intervention. The structure of the argument moved this way. You begin with a presumption of non-intervention because that principle is valuable in world politics. It is a principle that attracts the support of unlikely allies. Realists like non-intervention because it keeps order. Liberals like non-intervention because it provides space for self-determination. And small states of which the world is filled like non-intervention because they remember the, mar the remark of the great Australian political scientist Hedley Bull who said large states don't worry about intervention because large states are not intervened upon. So the consensus around non-intervention is something that demands respect, but an absolute rule of non-intervention does not demand respect. And so while the pre presumption is for non-intervention, 
The need is to define exceptions which can override the presumption. By the end of the 1990s, I think three were clear. Genocide was a reason to override non-intervention. Ethnic cleansing was a reason to override non-intervention. And failed states were a reason to override non-intervention. But there were two outlying cases on which there wasn't consensus. Ordinary human rights violations, a perverse phrase if there ever was one. But what I mean by it is you don't want to argue that there should be military intervention every time there are human rights violations. At least if you read Amnesty International, you don't want to do that, for war would be pervasive. And more importantly, the question remained if you override non-intervention for genocide, ethnic cleansing, and failed states, what should you do with weapons of mass destruction and proliferation? Should you override non-intervention in that manner? In summary then, by the end of the 1990s, there was an emerging consensus about non-intervention, but no final policy. And the debate was overtaken by terrorism. Now, let me turn to nonproliferation and then come back and relate the two. The policy of nonproliferation illustrates its own evolution. Three periods can be distinguished Cold War and nonproliferation from the late 60s till 1990, the post Cold War and nonproliferation from 1990 to 2000, and then terror and nonproliferation from 2001 to 2005. The way we dealt with nonproliferation in the outset of the Cold War and up through the end of it was what might be called the grand bargain. It was a bargain between the superpowers and the rest of the international community, or more precisely between the nuclear powers and the rest of the international community. The content of the bargain involved Articles 1 through 3 of the Nonproliferation Treaty. Nuclear states would not share nuclear weapons with others, non-nuclear states would not accept them, but non-nuclear states would not suffer because there would be rewards for signing the treaty, especially access to nuclear power. And Article 6 pledged the superpowers to level the field, if you will, by arms control and possibly disarmament. The results of this grand bargain were impressive. John Kennedy in the early 60s expected 16 nuclear states by 1975. By 1990, we had five plus three aspirants that were always mentioned, India, Pakistan, and Israel. Today, we have 188 states that uh, are signatories to the treaty. It was a diplomatic regime. That is to say, it was about incentives and inducements and sanctions, but at least in my reading, not primarily about the use of military power to enforce the regime. It was diplomatic, I think. The post-Cold War period from 1990 uh, to, through 2000, in fact, was a time of some change. First of all, nonproliferation surfaced as the primary nuclear issue. Secondly, at the UN, there were changes. The extension of the nonproliferation regime in 1995 was a clear victory. There was new commitments by the nuclear states about what they would do 
again to deal with a treaty that I will describe shortly as inherently flawed. And then in 1992, the U members of the UN Security Council asserted that weapons of mass destruction constituted a threat to peace and security that fell within the ambit of Chapter 7 of the Charter. So the UN Security Council presumably was authorized to act, and this implied the use of force. In terms of US policy in the 1990s, there was a move to complement nonproliferation with counterproliferation, to supplement nonproliferation, if you will, a change because the world had changed and because of the US role in the system. But when you put these two moves together, one of the interesting things, it seems to me, is that there's a rising salience of military threat and military options that are now embodied in nonproliferation policy. There's a tilting of nonproliferation away from primarily a diplomatic regime to a regime that has much more dimensions of coercion. Now, this can open up to two different roads of reflection. On the one hand, it can be seen as a further institutionalization of both legitimacy and enforcement located in the UN, which undoubtedly, it seems to me, should be welcomed. It also, however, can be seen as authorizing independent states to take military action to enforce the treaty. So then we come to nonproliferation and terror. After 9-11, nonproliferation becomes, in US policy, a dimension of the war on terror. I think it is fair to say that is not a universally shared conception of where nonproliferation should fit. But I think it is an accurate description of where it fits in US policy. Nonproliferation became located in a larger strategy, and that strategy was defined by the famous National Security Statement of 202. That strategy defined the basic threat in the world that the U.S. faced and others, according to the U.S., the basic threat was a combination of radicalism and technology. Translate that as terrorism and weapons of mass destruction. The premise of the document was that U.S. power, its primacy of power, created unique responsibilities. It then went further to argue that those unique responsibilities yielded self-defined duties, which the U.S. would define, but which the document seemed to expect that others would agree with. The challenge that was described was a challenge in which deterrence had been eroded, diplomacy had limited capacity, and therefore there was a need for a change in strategy, both in fighting terror and in nonproliferation. At the core of the strategy lay preemption. Preemption, of course, has been much debated, and I will add nothing to the debate. It is important to distinguish preemption and prevention. Lawrence Friedman calls them both controlling strategies, but of a different kind. Preemption is anticipatory response to an imminent danger. Preventive war is response to a speculative danger. And as Friedman puts it, unless you can make your case very clearly, it is hard to distinguish preventive war from aggression. The distinctive strategy of 202, it seemed to me, was not that it talked about preemption, a tactic that was known in classical military doctrine, but rather that it raised preemption to the level of a doctrine. And when the leading state in the international system 
argues that it now has the right and the duty to invoke preemption that borders on prevention, it is not simply what we will do that is at stake, but what kind of precedents we set for others. Henry Kissinger, in an article in which he defended the Bush Doctrine after having said it was revolutionary and contrary to international law, then defended it but closed his article by saying, of course, if others adopt this policy, it will be a big problem. <laughs> that is precisely the point about precedent. The style of the strategy was unilateralist and interventionary. Iraq was the expression of the substance and style of the policy in which nonproliferation was addressed militarily, legitimation rested with the sovereign judgment of a single state, and Iraq was seen as a precedent for other cases. So we come to the open policy question. The double debate of the 1990s on non-intervention on the one hand and non-proliferation on the other has now come together. We have expanded the notion of intervention, many of us arguing for it in 1990 and we have enhanced the military dimension of non-proliferation policy. So the policy question is, should military intervention be recognized morally, legally, and politically as a justifiable exception to the principle of non-intervention? The question that lay opened at the end of the 90s has now come back. And the issue is an issue of not only how you judge the case, but how you set precedents. So how should we think about this? Let me turn to the just war doctrine so I can close my remarks, using it as a framework to relate the two, the two pieces of this argument, non-intervention and proliferation. First, how to evaluate the non-proliferation regime itself, its very character. I suggest that from the beginning there was an original tension in the non-proliferation regime between the rights of sovereignty and the threat of nuclear weapons. Technically, all states were formally equal as sovereign states, but we were clearly asking some states to forego the very things that often, in the minds of many, constitute sovereignty, the right to use force and to accumulate the resources to use force according to the age in which one lives. The basic premise of the treaty was a restriction of sovereignty in support of an aggregate goal of systemic safety. Inequality was to be accepted by many in the name of the stability and safety of all. And if they signed on, their security was guaranteed and rewards would be given. Now, at the heart of the treaty in ethical terms was a saving grace, the principle of consent. One freely consented to this inequality, if you will, and restriction on sovereignty. And there was the right of withdrawal. The treaty, it seems to me, has a limited moral character. It is fragile and flawed, but clearly defensible. And it is defensible because of the unique nature of these weapons and the consequences of their use. But we should remember it is fragile and flawed. The question then is, does a fragile character of the regime justify resort to force to maintain it? It is one thing to say a treaty or a regime is flawed. It's another thing to say you now can use military force in support of it and to maintain it. And at the heart of this question lies intervention. The 1992 UN security statement 
drew an analogy, I think, between going nuclear and committing aggression. Both of them were regarded as causes for the UN to take action, including military action. Indeed, the 92 statement, it seems to me, of necessity argued that in the face of proliferation, the UN would have the right to use force and the right to intervene. What questions should we ask about, the, about this increasingly military component to nonproliferation and expanding the right to intervention within states to uphold an order which is defensible but also fragile? The classical just war questions are what I will conclude with. First, how to determine just cause when there is reason to act? The problem here is not simply about the urgency of systemic safety and the nature of nuclear weapons. The problem is what constitutes a trigger, just cause, to act? Is it the intention of a state to go nuclear? Is it when they begin to plan? Is it when they produce? Is it when they deploy? Or is it some of those plus the nature of the regime? And if we invoke the nature of the regime, how far do we move in that direction? How many regimes are untrustworthy? Secondly, the question of authority and legitimacy. The primary locus of authority to call into action enforcement of the treaty lies with the UN Security Council. That, I think, is clear in the treaty and in the 92 statements. But what of the role of individual states or collectivities of states, like NATO, acting? Here we have the echoes of the debates of the 90, Kosovo, no legitimation from the UN, but just cause to act, and action by an alliance. If legitimacy rests with the Security Council, is there any reason to expand at least legitimacy to individual states or coalitions of states? Do nuclear states have a presumptive legitimacy as guardians of a fragile, flawed order? Thirdly, the last resort test. This is always a test in just war to try to avoid the final step to war. In cases of humanitarian military intervention, there is an urgency to act. Rwanda showed it. In cases of nonproliferation, it seems to me the last resort test can be more stringent. We have time and can use a mix of means, incentives, sanctions, as well as threats of coercion. Fourthly, the proportionality test. The definition of this is you, if you're going to use force, you should not cause more harm than good, than doing the good you seek to do. But there's a tension here among three elements. There's increased institutionalization of enforcement, which I regard as positive. There is systemic safety, which is a reason to, be, to, to, to consider the use of force. But there is, on the other hand, this tilt of the system toward war, either through the UN or through individual states. Finally, there is the means test. I think primarily this is about constraining any use of force to non-nuclear means. So those are the questions I would put 
before I would justify intervention by military means to deal with proliferation. In summary, I think the pres presumption of non-intervention holds in this case that there ought to be very stringent tests for any exception, that multilateral authorization is necessary, and that the proportionality test will depend greatly on how these other tests unfold in our past. That leaves for all of us complex cases, but I am sure you can test me on those further than I might want to be tested, so I will cease and desist here. Thank you. Thank you very much, Father Hare. We have um, microphones scattered throughout the audience. If you'd like to ask a question, please come up to the microphone. I will call on you. And if you could identify yourself and your affiliation uh, before uh, asking the question, it would be appreciated. So if you come to either side or the middle, please. Petroleum Engineering here at Stanford. Uh, I think the obvious question is, how do you test the morality of non-intervention with respect to the intervention in Iraq? Now, for those who could not hear, how do you test the morality or immorality of intervention and weapons of mass destruction concerns with respect to Iraq? Father Harris said he knew he'd be questioned on specific cases. Right. You are absolutely right. <laughs> How insightful I was, right. <laughs> um, well, let me first clear the ground a bit. Uh, I was, at least insofar as it was useful at all, I argued in a number of pieces throughout the 1990s for expanding the reasons for overriding non-intervention. Uh, and so uh, I was on record as arguing that you should relativize non the non-intervention principle and relativize sovereignty. So relativization was not meant to eliminate either, but it was meant to reduce, in a sense, their weight. So when it comes to Iraq, the, the, the transition between the 90s and Iraq, of course, is 9-11 and Af Afghanistan. I'm just sort of taking you through the steps. Uh, my view is Afghanistan, uh, the uh, terrorist attack was a conscious, meditated attack across an international boundary against civilians, and it was, therefore, uh, a just cause, and the reaction against both al-Qaeda and the Afghan government, I think, was justified. That does not mean that every reaction against the government where terrorists reside necessarily is justified, but in that case, I thought it was. So now one comes to, uh, to Iraq. Uh, I say these things to say that I am not disposed uh, to oppose all interventions, but I thought the Iraqi intervention the best way I can put it is, I think it was conceived in confusion, carried forward by arrogance, and has issued in chaos. So, I mean, that, that is my general judgment on... I mean, I really mean each of those. I mean, I think it was conceived in a conception of what was possible through the use of force that was not well grounded. We now know that the pieces that were tried to be put together uh, each of them are challengeable. Weapons of mass destruction, ties to terrorism. 
there was a human rights argument to deal with, with Saddam Hussein and perhaps a human rights argument to deal with him under humanitarian military intervention. But clearly, you simply confuse the argument if you say that the invasion to Iraq was a humanitarian military intervention. I think it was carried forward in arrogance uh, because uh, taking the world into war uh, without being able to persuade the world that it ought to go, it seems to me, smells of arrogance. And I think the chaos is self-evident. Some microsystems. Um, do you believe that uh, torture is justifiable uh, in the interest of getting information uh, in order to decide uh, about uh, in intervening proactively or preemptively or whatever? Yeah. Um, again, I'll sort of explain myself at each point. Uh, if you hold the just war doctrine, there are different different ethical systems that feed into it. Uh, but the way I hold it. Uh, there are some principles that are what would be called in modern moral, moral philosophy deontological principles. They do not admit of exceptions. That's opposed to principles that are based on calculation of consequences. You need both of them in the just war doctrine. But if you hold to certain principles of having deontological or intrinsic character, then I think you have difficulty justifying torture on any ground. It is a direct assault upon the dignity of the human being. Now. Let us be very clear. We're talking about world politics here, not tennis. And so, therefore, there is tough questioning that goes on in warfare and tough questioning that goes on in terms of insurgency. So I don't mean to appear naive, uh, but I think there are lines that have been crossed. And again, I, without being, being able to make the case, because I'm not an international lawyer, but I think the whole classification process that went on by the U.S. government about who we could hold and under what conditions, it is a classic example of a slippery slope. You start defining things in a certain way, and then you start moving. I have enormous respect for the U.S. military. I have taught them in various ways for 20 years. I think they are a highly professional group of people, and I think it is not wrong to impugn the whole military uh, on the basis of Abu Ghraib. But it is not wrong to uh, impugn a policy that makes that kind of slippage easy. Professor Hasner, uh, Ron Hasner, CSEC affiliate. I'd like you. I'd like to pull you back to this uh, issue of Iraq uh -huh. and probe you a little more on uh, the difference between the justice of uh, the, the use ad bellum, uh, yeah. the, the, the justice before uh, taking action, and the use in bello, the actual manner in which. Uh, action is executed, uh, because you mix those two, uh, both in your talk and in your response to the first right. question. Uh, some 20 years ago, um, State of Israel took an action that was uh, against Iraq. Uh, one could argue the first uh, clear intervention on uh, that uh, I think we would be hard bent to say was not, in retrospect, uh, a good idea, even though people are not yet lining up on Menachem Begin's grave to whisper thank yous. I think it wasn't, um, in retrospect, such a bad idea. And I think we would think that um, because it was a pinpoint action, uh, cleanly executed, very little collateral damage, and resulted in an outcome that everybody except for Saddam Hussein seemed to benefit from. This suggests to me that the problem with the war in Iraq is not so much a problem of uh, overall questions of justice of may one or may, may one not intervene, 
but a question really of execution. We, we screwed it up in actually executing the action. Uh, if we could have done it in a elegant pinpoint fashion, as had occurred 20 years ago, I don't think anybody in this room would have objected to it. Um, I, don't I have to disappoint you. I object to both of your points. Good. I, I was hoping you would. I, was hoping I, you would. I, do, I do not think OSARAC was a good idea. I did not think so at the time, and I do not think so now. And it is precisely the burden of what I've tried to explain, that when you license individual states in a world uh, filled with weapons of mass destruction in various ways, I do not think it's a good idea. So I didn't then, I don't now. And while several of the people who are defenders legitimately of the war in, in Iraq, David Brooks is before me three days of the week arguing that it's all about execution, I was opposed to it from the outset, root, branch, entirely, before they got to execution. So I must confess, I mean, I understand your position, perfectly legitimate on both points, but at least for me, neither of them are persuasive. Back. Thank you very much for a very thoughtful talk. I'm Pino Cuellar from Stanford Law School in CSAC. I want to actually follow up on Professor Hasner's question by asking you the question perhaps in a slightly different way and broader way. If we think about how to deal with an international threat and we consider just war theory, of course we can decide that there are circumstances where we should go to war. But that leaves a separate question about military action, intelligence action, covert action, short of war. And the question, I guess, if you think about it generally, would be the following. Any time that we engage in war, just like any time we engage in economic sanctions, we're imposing a collective sanction on an entire nation. When and how should we make the choice to engage in targeted action that can remove individuals from power, Perhaps to make it a little bit uh, less dramatic, that maybe we could stop quite short of execution in a different context, in the context of ending someone's life, but that nonetheless violate the sovereignty principle and yet allows us to potentially avoid the catastrophic consequences of war. Well, my, an my answer to that grows out of a consequentialist calculus. Uh, uh, that, that is to say, uh, I think there is great wisdom in the executive order that I think is still in place in the U.S. government that uh, the assassination of leaders of countries when we are not at war with them, I believe, is, is prohibited. I think on a consequentialist basis, uh, which may not be the strongest basis for the argument, but I'll make it at that level, I think it is good law and policy. Because the problem is that I understand your point that it's better to take, a, you know, it's the biblical claim, it's better for one man to die for the people. But that doesn't solve the problem. Uh, one of the functions of just war involves declaration. Now, declaration today does not have the same meaning as it once had. But the function of declaration of the use of force is that you are willing to put on display before your own citizens and the world the reasons why you are now going to enter another country and exercise coercion. And it seems to me uh, uh, that kind of activity is never explained until at least afterwards, post factum. That I, I find troubling in a world of sovereign states. So I understand the point, but I, it is really a consequentialist argument from your side. It's a consequentialist argument from my side, again, about precedence and the way you contain sovereign states 
uh, without centralized political authority. Here. Would you get the microphone? I'm Whitfield Diffie from Sun Microsystems. Um, your last remark prompts me to say that there's a, a book I'm sure you've read called The Fine Art of Declaring War that contains the statement, the declaration establishes the political legitimacy of the war. And I was hoping I could get you to comment um, in that vein. Um, I, I opposed the war for two reasons, neither of which was that I foresaw it was going to go so badly. I didn't. The first was that I thought we would better have served the cause of peace by following the lead of the Security Council than by demonstrating that the UN could not control a giant state. But second, that no war in my lifetime has so required declaration as this war because we were expanding the notions of why we should go to war, which seems to me to be the point that you've been addressing. Well, first, I have to confess I haven't read the book, so <laughs> it's time to be honest. So I, <laughs> okay. Uh, secondly, secondly, a declaration is problematical today to some degree. I mean, the old-fashioned notion of formal declaration, I can understand why states do not use that. Indeed, thirdly, I would say, you know, in defense of the administration, they put the issue to the Congress. The Congress gave them a blank check. You can argue about what the Congress should have done, but the administration did not go surreptitiously to war. You can argue about what information was presented, and we're doing that in post hoc fashion now, but the fact of the matter is, let us not let the Congress off the hook. They wrote a blank check for this war, uh, and uh, only now are having their second thoughts about it, and we'll see where those lead. But I do think that, uh, that, that there was, in fact, there was quite an explanation about why we were going to war. We might now think that the explanation was built on sand, but it wasn't as if they didn't say what they were going to war for. And again, you know, we ought to be, I think, as honest as we can with each other. The President of the United States ran on the Iraq war in 2004 and got reelected. So, I mean, it isn't that it hasn't been explained. It's just maybe that the critique wasn't made sufficiently. We have a question in the front here. Uh, David Ibanez from Kenyatta State University. Uh, my question is, uh, you were talking about how the past, you know, you talked about facts of the past and how important past is. Uh, it seems to me that uh, we do not learn from the past, you know, questions, you know, and you were talking about dealing with proliferation and then talking about why we went to war. It seems to me, for what happened after September 11, that most policies, you know, people, uh, you know, the strong, uh, powerful states uh, went with their own agenda, which means uh, there was many, there were many questions uh, of uh, why we, why we will go to war, and at the end of the day, we went without having those, those uh, answers, you know, that we were eventually. So it seems to me that they are just uh, following their personal agenda. I know something else for this, you know. I don't see anything Well, usually, I mean, Japan passed all these laws, and we went to war, and go all these things. We were, I mean, we were afraid of something happening. We go to war, we're not safe. Okay, let me try and get at that. Uh, I think uh, I think it's true that there was the question was that that people gave lots of reasons for going to war, but the public, I think, generally 
didn't understand it, I think was the gentleman's question, and that the impact of 9-11 made people fearful, so you said you had to go to war, and people said we have to go to war. I'm partially with you, not totally, though. I mean, I do think there was quite an extended debate. Again, you can talk about the quality of the debate, but there was an extended debate around this, this question, and uh, I, I was surprised uh, myself that, that um, there was this sense that we were setting a precedent uh, and having set that precedent, uh, lots could flow from it. That, that was my concern always with Iraq, that it would be a precedent for further actions in the future. Uh, I think that, that, uh, that there was a debate. I don't think it's easy for citizens to get inside it. Uh, I think now in retrospect, as you say, we learned from the past, but the fact of the matter was, I don't think it was lack of time to have the debate. I think we didn't have it well enough, and I think the Congress was a case study of, of the failure of the rest of us to uh, surface that debate and drive it forward in a way that it wasn't driven. All right, let me um, ask a follow-on question here, and then hope that we can have some questions, not just by Iraq, but others. So this will be maybe the last Iraq question. I'm this is called intervention. <laughs> For a just cause. Um, Two of our speakers here at, at CSEC and Stanford last year were Condi Rice and Hans Blix. Mm -hmm. And they made very different arguments about the war. Um, Dr. Rice, um, as is very common in the administration now, moved away from the WMD intervention argument to say this was a perfect storm. Everything lined up. There were human rights violations, a government that had invaded its neighbors, and concerns about WMD, so this was justified under this broad principle. That is exactly the wrong thing to be saying if you're concerned about precedent mm -hmm. and setting them. Because that means the U.S. and other countries can intervene for a variety of reasons in the future. Dr. Blix, on the other hand, argued, as he did in front of the U.N., that Saddam Hussein had not come clean on his weapons of mass destruction program. And that maybe the United States government was wrong in its assessment, but that Saddam was like a man who put up a sign saying, beware of dog, in front of his house, when he did not have a dog. And that therefore, some form of intervention, not necessarily the one that was chosen, was legitimate in order to prevent the dog that that man claimed he had had, or to prevent other states from putting up signs saying, beware a dog, we have weapons of mass destruction and have not come clean with our commitment. Would you agree with Dr. Blix that some form of intervention might be justified if somebody is in apparent violation mm -hmm. of their non-proliferation agreement and what? have not come clean in terms of letting full inspection? Well, let me take both okay. because I think uh, Secretary Rice is uh, again, that was the privilege I had when I came to first, first came to SEAC was to meet her and have known her at a distance for a long time. Uh, but I think in the way you phrased the argument, uh, I think there's a principle of medieval logic that says a collectivity of reasons does not improve the final conclusion. <laughs> and that it is cleaner to have a single reason that goes right through from beginning to end 
and there's a clear connection between the, the case being made and the conclusion drawn. Right, sure. So I think the collectivity argument is weak, uh, is, is weak, inherently weak, uh, and uh, therefore uh, n not wise to use. Uh, I think uh, now, in terms of Hans Flick, uh, obviously, obviously, if you oppose Iraq, it is not to make a case for Hussein. That's first. Secondly, uh, there were pieces in place that were attempting to be inter interventionary of a certain kind. They needed to be either strengthened or reinforced. Uh, but the, the, the argument, uh, it, it seemed to me, that was, was being made that war was the only way to deal with him. And secondly, that he was so crucial in the war on terror. Now, that moves away from your question just a bit but that he was so crucial in the war on terror that it had to be fought. The second argument I always thought was wrong, at least in my mind, that it was, it was not crucial to the war on terror to take down Iraq or to start a war of the proportion that Iraq would be. Um, your point, though, that if someone seems to be, uh, seems to be not living up to their non-proliferation... Well, if someone has violated, violated their non-proliferation agreement, Right. We knew Saddam did in 91. Right, right. But and then is suspected of continuing to violate right. it and won't let inspections in. Right. Inspections is out. Is that is a just cause to have some form of intervention, not necessarily with the one you did? Well, when you that say some lit. form, you mean some form of military intervention. Well, the United because Nations forcing Saddam to have inspections. Right. Under the threat of use of force, if those inspections were not held, mm -hmm. the use of force or the threat of force is implicit even in the United Nations. That's true. That's what true. That's true. But it, um, I mean, I mean, my my general sense is I draw a big line between other forms of intervention and the Ultima Ratio. That's that's okay. the first. That's the first. Uh, the, the use of force. Secondly, calling that use of force in. Uh, I think the thrust of what I've tried to say is I have very limited grounds to do it. Very limited grounds to do it. Um, uh, breaking the obligations of the treaty, which are, um, again, it goes back to my trigger. It goes back to my trigger. How, how far up the ladder do you have to go in order to say it is now time to use force? Uh, and my sense with Iraq was a continued mix of containment, which I know has been trashed regularly, a continued pressure on uh, uh, inspection, which he was denied. In the context of the wider framework of the war on terror is what I would have stayed with for a much longer period of time. Twin vote, test question. At, uh, my question has a prelude to that, uh, and then I will find the only question. The prelude is that a few weeks back, my niece asked me, how would the car engine start? And uh, immediately I thought about the chemical reaction in the battery and the electrical and the mechanical and the combustion and all that. And I did not know how to answer a little niece all of that. Uh, my wife came to my rescue by saying, oh, you just push the key into the 
ignition and turn on. <laughs> the question is, and, and uh, uh, is it true that uh, the proliferation and the use of force happens when there's a desire, a uh, benefit, a capacity, and the knowing or feeling that you can get away with it, then no matter what is said, it's going to happen. Thank you. Uh, I, I, I take it what you mean is those things you mentioned, a desire, a capacity, and nobody else is going to oppose you, is what leads to proliferation? Is that, I mean, it leads to the use of, of force. And that the just war theory is irrelevant because people right. don't pay oh. attention to it. Well, of course, that is an ancient argument against an ancient ethic, <laughs> which really says that human nature will find its own way in spite of norms. But I'm just sort of committed by dress and other things to a proposition that that's not how the world runs. <laughs> but I admit I have to keep making the case. We can't really seem to get away from Iraq. I want to ask you about the ethics of not you, going to can war. Can you introduce yourself? I'm Bert Richter, uh, the Freeman Fogley Institute, and Slack. Uh, I want to ask you about the ethics of not going to war. Uh, right. Uh, Iraq and Saddam Hussein lost the war in 1991. Uh, they invaded another country. They were expelled. Sanctions were imposed. And those sanctions beggared the population destroyed a culture, left in control a tiny minority government where the people had no power to expel them themselves. And had one continued with the kind of sanction regime that we had used up to that time, the situation for the population would only get worse and worse. So if you do not allow intervention in the sense of going in to remove such a regime, what do you do then, and how do you morally justify imposing those kinds of suffering on the big population? Mm -hmm. Well, three, I think three things. First of all, you raised the first war in 91. Uh, I think that was a justified use of force uh, against aggression. I think, uh, secondly, you're right about the way sanctions function, not only in Iraq, but in Haiti also. And we learned a lot during the 1990s. During the Cold War, sanctions looked always appealing because they were less than war which risked catastrophic damage. When we tried to use them, uh, we found them a blunt instrument and in many ways you can argue that they attacked the principle of non-combatant immunity because they attacked civilians. That still leaves the third question, the third question though, that uh, whether in the case of Iraq, uh, the massive use of force that we needed in order to go in there was justified proportionately over against a, uh, an adequate sanction regime, inadequate in the way it was executed and, and uh, the way it was in place. Um, I, I think there have been attempts to rethink how you use sanctions and how you employ them, and I think uh, it still would have been better to keep fooling with the sanction regime or moving it around or trying to enhance it before we, we went to war. In other words, I, I understand your point. There are times when it's morally wrong not to go to war. I thought Rwanda was morally wrong not to go to war. We were morally wrong not to go to war in Rwanda. Uh, but 
sort of frustration with the sanction regime, plus the argument that the, that he had not lived up to the to the UN sanctions. The problem with that one, just in passing, the problem I have with that one was that when you couldn't convince the same body that made the made the right. regime that they would support you now, you were not on great ground. I mean, retrospectively. So. I still, it's not a perfect case by any means, but I still think proportionately, which I think was the thrust of your argument, proportionately, the degree of suffering, the degree of disruption, and the length of time of, that may follow from this, I still find it unpersuasive as an argument that we needed to remove him as an absolute essential element. So I, I take your point, it's we count the consequences differently. I'm going to ask Bud Whelan in the front here. Bud Whelan, retired bureaucrat. How are you? <laughs> I'd like to uh, respond to the guidance to move beyond Iraq. It seems to me that two things have happened. One, we've got a new president. Oh, I beg your pardon. I, I wanted to move beyond Iraq, as the chairman asked us to do. Uh, two things have happened in the last three years, it seems to me. One is that we have uh, set a new precedent, whether it was a good idea or not to. And two, we've uh, damaged our own credibility about the allegations for taking that. What does this do token for the future? Let's look down the next decade or two. Where do you see this taking us? Well, um, let me try and think about that for just a minute. Uh, I guess what I was trying to do in the lecture was to highlight that some very fundamental rules about rules or structures about international relations are in a process of evolution and change. And that was going on prior to 9-11. And it was both uh, uh, frustrating and interesting. It, re it really was a, a significant moment in the way world politics was moving. The structure of power had changed. It was no longer bipolar. It seemed to me the academics, those of us that never got an agreement on what it was when it wasn't bipolar. We had this debate about intervention. We had change it with the, the non-proliferation centrality uh, forced us to rethink that question. All of that was going on. And so it was a, it was a, a, a complicated but interesting time. Then 9/11, in a sense, blew apart the framework, and it became the lens through which you looked at all of world politics, understandably at first. But to go to your question about where we're headed, I think now, as a result of the, not a result of the war on terror, but as a result of the Iraq debate. I think we have a highly fragmented international community. We've got a very fragmented U.S. community. Uh, we've got questions about credibility of information, which is hard enough in international relations to trust, and now there is this pervasive distrust. You put all of those together, and it's not like you're trying to wind the clock back to where we were and pick up on these themes, although I think we have to pick up on every one of the themes. Uh, but we're, we're, in a sense, set back as we try to set some basic rules of international politics. We're, we've been set back by the fragmentation in the system, 
within the lead country in the world, uh, we are not having, I think, a very impressive debate about foreign policy in the United States today. I think that's a modest statement. And that's a big problem when the United States is what it is in world politics. So fragmentation within and abroad, lack of trust, I think we're, we're at a point where we're going to have to rebuild from square one on not every aspect of international relations, but on some of these important questions. I think intervention now becomes, once again, a sort of bad word, just in toto, when I don't think you can treat it that way. Some interventions are necessary. Other interventions ought not to be undertaken. But I think we've sort of we've muddied the discourse as well as trust. And we're, in, we're, we're still faced with fundamental questions that need addressed. Drell. Going further away from uh, Iraq, after this marvelous discussion and analysis of what we do at the intersection of intervention and non-intervention and non-proliferation, we've only been in the nuclear domain. And I'd like to know how in your thinking issues may differ when we talk about, say, biological weapons or chemical, where the information of who has them and who doesn't is so clouded and we, know so, we can learn so much less about them. Tidrell is a respected friend who always finds the vulnerable point in any argument I make. Uh, this one I have to really disappoint you on. I, I purposely limited this because I don't control that other debate at all, intellectually. I mean, I, there's, there just is, there, there is so much I don't know about, particularly by the biological, that I don't think I have anything really useful to say, and therefore if I try to say useless things, I'll simply expose myself. I want to expose my own ignorance. Well, no, I, I just, I mean, I Bill, Bill Perry, I'm sure, could instruct me, but I, I just do not control that material in a way that I would hazard a guess. I'm sorry, Jim. For the microphone to be turned on, we can't hear yet. Okay. Martha Helene, David Kim from SRI International. I wanted to ask you about non-proliferation uh, in the context of Pakistan or Iran's nuclear program. And uh, you know, given national pride, financial incentives, the difficulty in distinguishing between dual use, um, who is entitled to the pursuit of nuclear technology? And what conditions do you think uh, may be used to limit which states qualify? Excuse me, you took the last paragraph. I'm just not getting it. Okay, I'm sorry. Um, who is entitled to pursue nuclear technology? And what conditions may be used to limit which states qualify? Who's entitled to receive nuclear technology? To receive it or to produce it? Did you say? I'm sorry. Either one. Uh, either one. But I mean, she specifically asked in the context of Iran two or cases, Pakistan. No. Iran no. and Pakistan. Well, when I try to think about this problem, I think you have to start with the sovereign equality of nation states. And so you, you have to start with an argument that if you live in the nuclear age, in one sense, in principle, any sovereign state has in principle the right to pursue access. I immediately want to cut that argument off, having established it. <laughs> I, I, don't want to, I don't want to pursue that logic in a linear fashion. 
but I think I want to start that way because uh, if you don't start that way, then you you simply inherit the logic of the treaty. And the logic of the treaty is there there are sovereign states, all equal, but they're not equal in a very fundamental way. The world's divided into into nuclear and non-nuclear, and then we start from there. So I want to start back saying that the non-nuclear states have accepted a restriction on their sovereignty as part of a grand bargain of systemic safety for them and for us. Secondly, having, having said that, uh, I then think that the production of fissionable materials and other things is part of the problem of non-proliferation so that I want to set limits on that also. So I, I want again to cut across this sovereign equality. But we've got to do it in such a way that we provide appropriate rewards, if you will, and procedures for preventing that access or, or stopping it that are regarded as legitimate, if you will, legitimate legally, politically, morally. Then you begin to say, well, what procedures would be regarded as legitimate? And that's where I'm pretty strong on saying a non-proliferation regime has to be primarily a diplomatic regime. Now, diplomacy without force ultimately collapses. So I'm not saying there's never military force, but I would say that starting where I begin, you have to go a long, long way before you say it is time to use military force to prevent them from doing that. So who has the right? In theory, I think you have to start just conceptually saying everybody does. Then you want to narrow the right down. And I think the bargain the Non-Proliferation Treaty tries to strike is a legitimate bargain, but it has to be constantly updated and it has to be implemented with uh, exceeding um, sensitivity to what I would call its flawed character as well as its necessary character. Thank you for a very thoughtful... Big, can you identify yourself for the... Big Hecker from CPAC. I, I want to take you a step beyond starting an unjust war and ask you, does history teach us anything about how you write an unjust war? R-I-G-H-T, not W-R-I-T-E. Um, well, I, I, we're learning I, a lot I'm about not, how I'm, people can write about an unjust war. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to think of, since you pushed it historically, how I would choose cases that, that uh, illustrate it. I'm not sure I can do that on my feet. Uh, uh, but let me talk about it analytically. I mean, I think if you're convinced that there was lack of justification in resort to force in the beginning, then I think there ought to be some acknowledgement of that. I think secondly, when you find yourself in the middle of a war that was unwisely started or unjustly started, you do face a new question. Because I opposed the war from the beginning, I do not simply think you can just leave. I do think you can admit what you did and admit it clearly to your own people and to others. But then having admitted that, then we have to deal 
the, the, the logic shifts to a consequentialist mode of argumentation. And then you can begin to ask, you know, in a sense, how do you get from here to there, recognizing that the steps that got you to here were flawed, mistaken, wrong, however you put it. So I think if you, as I say, if you're convinced it was wrong, the best thing to do is to say it. The second thing to do is to recognize and to say also that a second wrong doesn't make the first one any better. So then the question is, how do we think wisely about where we are and how we get from here to somewhere else, uh, which is necessitated by the fact maybe that we shouldn't have been here in the beginning. No, please, please, we have to wait for the microphones and ask a question. I'm going to give Dr. Bill Perry the last question. So, Bill? I'm Bill Perry, CSAC and School of Engineering. Now, Brian, in your truly excellent talk, you quite appropriately do a sharp line between the use of military force and all other actions you might take. Bill, you're going to have to speak up. The people are hard um, Among hard those other actions, Pomley uh, stands diplomacy. Mm -hmm. uh, my reading of history is that diplomacy has often been most successful when it was coercive diplomacy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That is, diplomacy that threatened the use of force. Yep. Now, my question to you then is what side of this line do you put coercive diplomacy? Is it on the side of the use of force? Or is it on the other side? Because understand, when you threaten the use of force, you have to be prepared to use it. Yeah. I, I think, actually, coercive diplomacy still lies on the side of the line that is called diplomacy. But I take your point that if you make the threat, in some circumstances, you've got to be willing to use it. So then you cross the line. But coercive diplomacy, because you're absolutely right, there is no diplomacy without the possibility of force in an anarchical world. I accept that. My concern was the way I think nonproliferation has tilted toward more and more invocation of military options. And so I, I don't like the drift, but because I don't like the drift doesn't mean I never would use it. And secondly, I think coercive diplomacy still fits in my conception of diplomacy uh, because it identifies the terms under which you will then cross the line, and that's really what both good strategy and good ethics is about. Well, let us, before concluding, thank three individuals. First, we should thank Bud Wieland for endowing this lecture series. So, Bud, thank you very much. <laughs> Second, we should thank Sidney Drell for both inspiring this lecture series but also for all the wonderful work he did both for the U.S. government as a consultant and uh, at SLAC and as the funding director of CSAC. Thank you, Sid. <laughs> and lastly, of course, please uh, join me in, in thanking Father Brian Hare for an excellent talk today. Thank you very much.
The preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.